Good morning, church. Thank you, guys. We're going to be continuing in Luke. No surprise there if you've been with us before. So we are today in Luke 12. You can go ahead and start to open. I want to say some opening things before we read, but we're in Luke 12, and it's a familiar passage on the range of teachings of Jesus. It would be in the top tier of teachings we've heard or we're familiar with of Jesus's saying to us, namely, do not be anxious. So we're going to start in 22 here in a little bit. While you're opening, unlike other passages of Scripture, and even in Luke specifically, I don't have to convince you that this is a problem. Like, for example, when we're talking about casting out demons, Eric, I believe, is who preached that Sunday, and he, he had to sort of remind us that spiritual warfare is real. And it's helpful for us because when we read that part, we might be like, I don't really swim in those waters every day. But whenever we start off the passage with, do not be anxious, we all know that that's something that surrounds us in our families, in our own hearts, in our communities, around us, even where we sit this morning. So we already sort of, we don't have to be sold on the start, on the hook of the passage as it were. A study, uh, American uh, Psychological Association in 2021, I suppose they're about to do their one for 2020. They asked this simple question, are you more stressed this year than you were last year? And the latest one in 2021, 40% of Americans said yes, they were more stressed this year than the year previous, which is a pretty high number, but in 2020, not surprisingly, the number was the highest jump they'd ever seen, and 60% of Americans were more stressed in 2020 than they were in 2019, which actually makes that 40% all the more nervous, right? That even 40% of those felt like they were even more stressed than they were in 2020. So stress and anxiety, it's, it's not something that we are surprised that we swim and are surrounded by stress and anxiety. And that's not even to mention the kinds of stress, the kinds of things that stress us out and make us anxious. In our passage, we're going to see uh, that Jesus is referring primarily, uh, the, the specific examples he uses are of what you eat and what you put on. And at first blush, you might be a little bit like me and think, well, I don't really stress about what I wear while I'm opening my closet and think, I need to get rid of some shoes. I just have too many shoes. I've got way too many shirts. In fact, how many of these shirts have I not worn? In fact, some of these shirts I could not wear. And then I think, well, I don't really stress about what I eat all that much while I open my refrigerator that keeps my food at the exact right temperature. And some of the drawers have humidity controls. And I pop out a frozen burrito and throw it in the microwave and hit auto defrost and think, I don't really worry about my food. But I do feel anxiety. And what do I feel anxiety about? It's in the same categories Jesus is talking about. It's in the categories of those things that just sort of bring and meet my needs today. I get stressed about my work. I'm sure you do too. I get stressed about my callings, the things I need to accomplish in any day. I'm sure you do too. I get stressed and anxious about how to be a father and how to be a husband. So the things that I need for my day, in the same categories of what Jesus is talking about. And I, this week I did, I did some really 
a strong research on my phone through my Apple News to see what kinds of categories of anxiety people are talking about. And you can imagine there's more categories of anxiety than I had even recognized. Right? There's understandable, there's health anxiety, there's sleep anxiety, there's travel anxiety. One of the headlines was, my travel anxiety, traveling makes my travel anxiety worse. Thinking, seems to make sense. There's pet anxiety, which then it makes you, the owners, anxious about their pets. There's culture or uh, uh, climate change anxiety. I just saw a new one this morning. Can't remember what it was I was scanning through. In fact, there's so many different kinds of anxiety that as I'm reading through that, I start feeling anxious about what kinds of anxiety I might be having. And it's not just an American problem. Uh, another much less scientific poll that I found, uh, it, it's just a website, and it just asks people all over the world, and here's the question, did you experience stress during a lot of the day yesterday? And they rank them by country. And surprisingly, at least to me, America was not number one. We're number seven. Yes. <laughs> number one is Greece. Greece? What do they have to be anxious about? Have you ever seen a picture of the Greek Isles? All the way down, here's the top ten, in case you're curious, of the most anxious countries according to this less-than-scientific study. Number one, Greece, Philippines, Tanzania, Albania, Iran, Sri Lanka, us, Uganda, Costa Rica, Rwanda. Not a lot in common in those areas or regions. The good news is, this list, if you're looking for a place to move that has the least amount of stress as of yesterday, they're almost all for former Soviet Union bloc countries, so if someone on the next family night were saying goodbye to you because you're going to Kazakhstan, now we'll know why. Only 10% of people in Kazakhstan felt stress a lot of the day yesterday. Now all jokes aside, the point being, we all recognize that we're stressed and we're anxious and we live amongst a stress-filled, anxious people and a world that's full of stress not even just around us. And so while there is general agreement that there's a problem, there is not agreement on what the solution of that problem is. There is very little helpful things. If you actually start thinking how to help my stress and anxiety, it's not very helpful. Half of the websites will sell you something. Go buy this. This will help you with your stress and anxiety. A, a lot of the same characters that you might think are just sort of thrown out as ways to alleviate your stress and anxiety. Uh, do a little meditation, sleep better, breathe, open a window, light a candle. There's the latest study that says eat more Marmite. Does that work, Andy? Andy's not very stressed. But do we really believe that stress can be taken care of by eating Marmite by candlelight? I think that we know deep down that this problem is deeper than opening a window and meditating and eating a certain vitamin-rich substance. In fact, we know that it attacks us and it attacks those that we love. And in this room, there is no doubt Many of us who struggle with crippling anxiety, depression that causes us to not be able to get out of bed some days, 
suicidal thoughts, and all kinds of other avenues that would come straight out of this aspect of anxiety. So with all that set up, a little longer than what would normally be, I, I really wanted to, to pinpoint this passage to our hearts so that when we read it now, that we're sort of moving beyond, okay, yeah, we're all stressed. When we try to get to what Jesus says about the kingdom, because that's really what the passage is driving at. Not merely, yes, you're stressed, stop being stressed, but the part when we read it halfway through that says, instead, seek his kingdom. So let's read the passage now. We'll ask for God's help, and then we'll jump in. So I'm going to read Luke 12, starting in verse 22 through 34. King Jesus, we know that we're stressed. We know we need your help. Uh, Give us ears to hear uh, your word so that we could actually receive the help that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 22. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you're not able to do As small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, as I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Thank you, Lord. The logic of the passage is very easy to follow. It's essentially set up the same way that the title of the sermon is set up, because it's straight out of the text. Do not be anxious, but instead seek the kingdom. So let's tackle the first part first. It's probably of the two parts, the one we're most familiar with and have probably thought about, memorized, used to encourage ourselves and others at multiple times. So Jesus points out to the disciples, I tell you, do not be anxious. And he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, stop being anxious, don't be anxious. He gives a few very quick groundings and illustrations and examples for why the disciples should not be anxious. The first one is just a statement in 23. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Don't be anxious about how you will be provided for because your life is more than the provisions that you seek. The second one is sort of like, it's it's almost kind of funny because he says uh, in 25, here's a second reason, uh, 
which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? A single unit of measurement. In other words, don't be anxious. It doesn't do you no good anyway. Which we all recognize that. But I think that these two reasons are really the, 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 part, the, the poetic and powerful part of the passage is, is sort of what comes in and around these. And that is this, this sense that God provides for the ravens, and God provides for the flowers, which he also calls grass, interestingly, both in this passage. The lilies get turned into grass, which gets turned into fuel for burning. So if God will care for these things, how much more will he care for you? And this brings us back to a really crucial part of understanding this entire passage, both part one and part two, and I think in relation to Kenny's passage last week, and that is Jesus' point is not merely humans are more important than birds, right? This is not a sort of um, study on the value of being an image bearer of God. Or, more crassly, this is not a study on those of us who have climbed to the highest evolutionary form. God loves us more than those who have not. No, the passage is framed in such a way that this Father, the point of it being our Father is the crucial part here. Because in Kenny's passage last week, we have Jesus teaching in the crowd. Some guy calls out, I need some inheritance. Jesus points out to him essentially some idolatry, some covetousness. Uh, you, you fool, you're going to build, you know, in the story, he's going to build a big barn, and then you don't know that your life will be demanded of you. Now we're moving to a very crucial part that I sort of skipped past deliberately because I wanted to get to it here because now in the way that Luke tells the story in verse 22, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples, specifically to the disciples, and says, don't be anxious. Right, so it's almost as if and the way that Luke has written this is Jesus is saying, hey, you fool tonight because you're covetous and because you want to build these big barns tonight, your life may be taken of you. Pause. Maybe it's later in the day. Maybe it's not. And he pours two of the followers and says, don't be anxious. I think there's a couple of, of really important things that come out of that. Um, and, and the evidence of that, first of all, we see it all the way through this, right? That the point is not humans are good. The point is your father, the father loves his children. I think that's actually exactly why it's specifically stated to the disciples to not be anxious. Because this care that we see, God feeding the birds and taking care of the flowers, is saying, your father will take care of you if you're a child of God. I think it reminds me, we see it again, just like Kenny said, in this little flock in 32. Fear not, little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So the point of this passage, the one part of it is, okay, if I struggle with anxiety, I need to remind myself, and this passage shows me, that that's something that followers of Jesus can struggle with, even the disciples, right? So you're in good company if you struggle with anxiety. And it's not as if after this teaching, the disciples the rest of their lives never struggle with anxiety. Oh, remember that time Jesus said, don't be anxious? Psh, we never had any more problems with it. 
you just, all you have to do is keep reading. You see they continue to struggle with this. It's something that they continue to have issue with. So that shouldn't surprise us either. So on the one hand, we can be reminded that disciples can struggle with having little faith. That's what Jesus tells them. Disciples can struggle with anxiety. Disciples can struggle with wanting to build our earthly kingdoms of selfishness with our possessions rather than seeking the kingdom of God. Maybe even there's a sense in which disciples can uh, experience this in a different way even than the world. It actually is, there's a couple of things in this passage that are offensive to our culture's ears today. The first one is in verse 30, it's basically the same thing in two different times. I'll point the second one out later. In verse 30 says, for all the nations of the world seek after this thing, these things. And your father knows that you need them. It's just drawing this line between those who follow Jesus, those who have accepted Jesus versus those who have not. And he's saying, if you have professed your faith and if you have trusted Jesus, your father will provide for you. So that's my first sort of word of encouragement. If you struggle with anxiety, my first question is, do you know Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus? And if you have, then your Father loves you. Your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. It reminds me of the Lord's Prayer, right? It was just, it was just a little while ago. It was a, a couple of weeks ago, but in the cha- just about a chapter ago, that we have the same sort of conversation and once again it's to the disciples talking to their father father hallowed be your name your kingdom come we're not there yet but that's what we're getting give us each day our daily bread the disciples the followers of jesus can confidently go to our father knowing that he will meet our needs with a desire for his kingdom to come it's a, I, th- I think that's a beautiful little point that uh, if you struggle with anxiety, you're in good company. <laughs> and you just remind yourself your father has you. It's a daily struggle. So that moves us into what I believe is the second part of the passage. And that is once we move beyond, don't be anxious, your father will provide. Now we get to seek the kingdom And now the mentality shifts slightly because God is our Father. But now the the mental image, because we're talking about a kingdom, is of Jesus the King. So while if it's don't be anxious, your Father will provide, seek the kingdom because the King reigns. So let's just pick it up and finish reading that part once again. I'm going to start right back in verse 30 with this sort of offensive statement. The, the people who don't know Jesus, they worry about these things. Verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is there your heart will be also the wording is very interesting and helpful because the wording is don't be anxious instead as an alternative seek the kingdom before we jump in here with both feet 
let's just sort of pause and remind ourselves of the importance of this terminology, the kingdom. I did a very uh, quick survey of just scanning through a word search, and it looks to me somewhere roughly around 40 times in the Gospel of Luke alone, Jesus' teaching involves the kingdom. The word shows up more times than that, but explicitly in Jesus' teaching. So it's something he talks about a lot. He says all kinds of things about the kingdom, even verses that we've already read. He talks about it's his need to proclaim the kingdom. He talks about people seeing the kingdom, people receiving the kingdom, people entering the kingdom. Even in just, even in Jesus' beginning and the end of his ministry, the way Luke records it is kingdom talk. It's, it's bookending his entire life. When the angel comes to Mary, the angel says, of his kingdom there will be no end. In the book of Luke, when Jesus is on the cross, one of the thieves looks, at him, looks over and says, hey, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Kingdom is an, is an incredibly important and crucial concept in Jesus' teaching. There's so many things we could say as we're diving into it, but I want to try to limit it as best we can to what's in the text because we want the text, this specific text, to try to shape the way that we understand this while drawing from other things insofar as they're helpful. And one thing right off the bat we can be reminded from the text and the preceding parts of Lucan theology itself is that there's something interesting about the kingdom and that Jesus is talking about it all the time, but it's already... It's something that we could consider as an already not yet. This is something that theologians talk about all the time, but I think it's helpful to see it biblically. And if you just go back, and for my Bible, it's on the same page. But in chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus is talking about this claim whenever they say he's casting out demons by Beelzebul. And this isn't the first time or the only time he says this, but he says, if I'm casting out these demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come near you. That's the alreadiness. So the kingdom of God comes with Jesus, that Jesus' incarnation brings the kingdom in some way. But it's not fully here. That's the, the not yet part of the kingdom, as we see in the exact same chapter from Luke 11 and verse 2 in the Lord's Prayer is, your kingdom come, the coming part of Jesus' kingdom. So there's an already not yet. On the one hand, the kingdom's all about Jesus. It's all about the rule of Jesus. And with Jesus's birth the kingdom came to earth but it won't be fully complete until jesus comes back and we see that from luke itself we don't have to go outside the systematic theology to see that that's a way that we can understand that so let's just keep in our handhold there let's just allow first of all the text to help us see what do we do with this? Like, how are we supposed to think about this kingdom? And I, it's, I don't know about you, but for me, in the last few days, it's like, wow, for something that Jesus talks about so much, it's obviously so important. Do I think enough about God's kingdom? Do I find myself distracted and, and interested in other aspects of Jesus' teaching? And to the point that maybe because some of this already not yet, it's, it's, tr it's, it's tricky at times or whatever else, and I'm going to give some practical helps in a bit, but I want to stick with keeping our nose in the text because it's always the smartest and safest way to go. 
So what's Jesus saying about the kingdom in this text? He deliberately and immediately, first of all, presents the kingdom as the solution to anxiety. He says that the Father's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom and then immediately moves to possessions. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags and not grow old, a treasure in the heavens. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke of the gospel authors is more interested in talking about possessions than some of the other evangelists. He, 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 he extracts and presents Jesus' teaching on this front more frequently than the others. And I think it's helpful, particularly for those of us, all of us, who live in a culture that is materialistic and very driven towards possessions. So there's some connection here that Jesus immediately moves to between seeking the kingdom and what do you do with your possessions? How do you think about your possessions? What do you treasure? Specifically in context related to our possessions. And essentially it's another controversial thing to say in our culture today and that is Jesus is hey there's some things worth treasuring and there's some things that are not worth treasuring. It's actually one of the one of this interesting things about this whole sort of the cultural world that we live in we all know that we live among stress but the primary antidote to stress by our culture is you be you whatever whatever if it makes you happy it can't be bad run towards those things that you think are specifically going to generate for you what you're looking for and your own happiness and jesus is here saying you fool you might think having a barn full is what makes you happy but it's not going to make you happy it's not going to work Instead, Jesus is saying that you be you, whatever makes you happy, that's going to not produce what you want. It's only going to produce more anxiety. What's not going to produce anxiety is rather than you be you, whatever makes you happy, a kingdom of selfishness and a kingdom of self is to actually be seeking the kingdom of God and those things that will not burn up. I want to stop and just just before we jump into the kingdom with the minutes that we have left and just think about possessions just for a second. In the last few weeks, I've had about as strange of a dichotomy on this front as I think you could have because I've been in two very, very different places over the last month. The first one is, many of you may know, and my, my two sons are adopted from Ethiopia, and by God's grace, we were able to go back to Ethiopia. We were there three or four weeks ago. And not only did we to go to this beautiful culture, we actually traveled our way into the south, and we got to go to this remote village where my sons actually were born, and they got to meet family members and, fam and family friends, and just sort of the tribe greeted us as a family, but specifically my two sons. This is a place where they live in grass huts, and the only automobiles even that you hear are the ones that brought us and took us back away. And yet, this particular tribe, and I had known this, I had read this, and one of the most helpful things I had read as, as I had adopted my sons was a uh, PhD dissertation 
um, missiology about the tribes in the south of Ethiopia and when they became evangelized because they are evangelical Christian tribes. So I, I sort of knew this by uh, a book. But when we walk in to this tribe where our guide tells us that the people probably live off of something like 800 to $1,000 a year, they, they have their own little plots of ground. They farm them. They eat most of their own crops. Every now and then they have a market, and they try to sell some of them for cash crops. But this little tribe of evangelical Christians greeted us. And not only did they greet us, when we walked in, we had seen pictures of the area before. We'd never been there. My boys had been there when they were young, but, but the rest of us hadn't been there. They had rented like a large tent like a wedding tent for us to meet and greet in like that would be expensive for any of us to rent and put into our backyards for whatever events that we host but somehow this little tribe of these people who have very little possessions and I even wanted to ask but I didn't want to feel presumptuous I was just like who rented this <laughs> right it's just like I just I just want to know and I believe, my guess is, is that the, the, the congregation, the church, must have done that to sort of give honor to this super important event of these boys returning back home. And when we sat in there for the first time, not only after, after meeting family, this, this young man stood up and began to speak, and he was speaking in the tribal language, Sadama, and he was speaking rapidly, and he was speaking quickly, so it didn't all get translated, because things to come to us had to be translated three ways. It had to go from Sadama to Amharic to English multiple different translators and next thing I know he's got a book he's open it and he's reading it and people are praising the Lord while he's talking it was amazing thanks I asked the only question I asked is what did you just read he read Psalm 33 at least some portion of it I don't think it's in its entirety my family that night I don't know if there's many times at least that I have felt the spirit more in our family devotion as we're reading Psalm 33 knowing that this was read out in, in, in a native tongue under a tent, this use of possessions. On the flip side, I have spent in the last two months more time than I would like in Las Vegas for my work. Las Vegas, some of you probably still like to go to Las Vegas. I'm tired of Vegas. I've been there too many times. But the same amount of money that these people make in a year, people are shoving into a slot machine, building a very different kingdom. And I just want to throw this out as just sort of a mental category with Jesus. The primary thing he's saying is, hey, there's, there's better and worse things to be investing in. There's better and worse things, regardless of how much income you have to distribute, there's smarter and dumber things to put your money in. And it ties back up with Kenny's passage beautifully, doesn't it? Kenny's passage last week was this man is covetous. He's building bigger barns, and he can't build a barn big enough because if you constantly covet more, you obviously always need a bigger barn. Well, the same thing can be true with anxiety because those of us who have struggled with anxiety know if you're really anxious, you can't have a barn big enough to not be anxious. All of a sudden, in fact, in some ways, the more stuff you've got in the barn, the more anxious you might be that the barn's going to burn down or something's going to happen to the barn or someone's going to steal what's in the barn. So you cannot have a barn big enough for anxiety. And so that's why we have to completely shift our entire focus and attention to the kingdom. That's what we want to do now. Seek his kingdom 
Well, we've already talked about the importance of the kingdom. Let's define the kingdom really quickly. And there's, there's a number of diff- good ways to define it, but I'm going to define it like this, and I'll show you where I get this definition from in a second. God's reign through God's people over God's place. The kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. And the most important, the key of that is the reign. God's reign. The kingship of the Lord. That at its essence, to seek the kingdom means let Jesus be king. Recognize Jesus as king. Live your life consistently of what your life should look like if you're seeking the glory of the king rather than yourself. Had a very helpful conversation uh, this week with uh, Dave and Sherry Peters, and uh, the Sherry's right there. And Sherry, the, Dave, she wanted the phone, and she got the phone. And here, I'll never forget her question because this was like Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday. And she said, "Jason, are, and I think I, I think I say this exactly how you said it. It's going to be close anyway. Are you going to sink your teeth into helping me practically know some ways to seek the kingdom?" What a great question. Are you going to sink your teeth into some practical ways to help me know how to seek the kingdom? And I told them at that time, well, pray for me. <laughs> and they did. I'm sure that they have more than that. It's like, it's exactly, I, as I started this passage, I started thinking about anxiety, but the more I moved through the passage, the more I realized this passage is about the kingdom. Because there's a way to not be anxious. In other words, you could fulfill the first part of this passage and still fail miserably, right? I mean, you, you could just sort of be a kind of person who's like, I'm not really very anxious. I think most of us don't really believe you. At some point, a wave's going to hit you. And at some point, that whatever the stuffing mechanisms that you've used in your life uh, that have sort of allowed you to, to sell yourself on the fact that you are not an anxious person are going to fall apart. But... In that time, you say, I don't really deal with anxiety. That, let's imagine that's true. But there's a way to be self-sufficiently not anxious. And then you're failing the second part of the passage. You're not seeking the kingdom. So the point is not merely walk through this world anxious-free, without anxiety. That's not really the goal. The goal of the passage is seek the kingdom. Use your anxiety as a warning light, an alarm signal for, wow, I am experiencing anxiety. I need to seek the kingdom. I need to be more consistent in turning my life upside down so that I can be a follower of my king. So, Sherry, I'm not going to be able to help you as much as I would like, but I do have a book for Sherry and anyone else. This is a really helpful little book. It's called Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything by Jeremy Treat. He's a local pastor in Los Angeles. He teaches as an adjunct at Biola. He's a young guy. This is a very pastoral book. This is not an academic book. This is a very helpful book. And one of the things that he says in it, just so you can get a flavor for sort of where this is going, He says, in other words, prioritizing the kingdom does not minimize the other aspects of life. It puts them into perspective. The kingdom of God doesn't have to compete with our work, hobbies, relationships, and other important aspects of life. And in fact, when rightly understood, the kingdom will enhance every aspect of life, infusing them with fresh meaning and significance. Only the kingdom of God is powerful enough to order and unite the various aspects of your life. 
And that's exactly in the first chapter what he does throughout the book. And that's what I want to say is, okay, so what does it mean to seek the kingdom? Well, the first thing it means is acknowledge that Jesus is the king. The second thing we want to say is, okay, then if Jesus is the king, what does it look like for me to live my life as if Jesus were the king of my life? What, what would it look like in every instance possible for me to live my life as if Jesus was reigning in me? And given what the passage runs to, we might be tempted to say, okay, does that mean we're supposed to sell our possessions and give everything to the poor and um, just sort of like move out to India and become the newest forms of the Desert Fathers or something like that. And I don't think so because we've already seen and we'll see continued through Scripture how Jesus says to the person who's placing all of their hope in their possessions, sell all your possessions. Then we have someone like Zacchaeus who says, I'm going to give half of what I've taken back to others and to the poor and Jesus is like yeah this is this is a follower of the Lord right here because the fact of the matter is if Jesus is going to reign in our lives then we have to recognize that okay what does that look like well just earlier in chapter 11 right before the good Samaritan okay we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart soul mind and strength and love our neighbor Okay, so if Jesus reigns in me, I'm supposed to love God and love others. Well, what's one of the ways I'm going to love others? Well, one of the ways I might love others is to give away of my possessions. And God may be calling some of us to do that. Another way that I love others is by attending to the callings and the vocations that the Lord has given me this day. So I, I look out. We have auto mechanics and nurses and teachers, doctors, all kinds of people who God has placed you in the position that he has of your life to say, hey, you could do that thing that I've called you to do in such a way that's building your own kingdom, or you could do that thing in such a way that's participating and building God's kingdom. And that's what we're called to do, and it's not an easy calling. God, there's so much more that I could say, but I, I want to get to the last few things that I had, and that is that uh, I... I do this sometimes, and this time it helped me, I think, more than it has previously. And, and I, I sought out some help in this passage, specifically on this anxiety part and the anxiety pushing us towards recognizing a need to seek the kingdom. And so what I did is I reached out to some people in the church that I knew were facing some pretty difficult times with anxiety. And, and I'm even a little nervous to do this because I don't want anyone to think of the people I'm, a, I'm about to mention as sort of like living saints. They never have struggles because the questions they asked and the way they wrote actually help us to navigate and walk through those struggles with them. So the first couple that I reached out to were the Mansons, Tracy and Robert, sitting here. Many of you probably know that I believe it's three or four months ago now when the diagnosis hit. So when the year began, family had no idea anything would change. But a few months ago, Tracy had the diagnosis of stage four cancer. It's already spread. She's been given anywhere from two years to live, maybe a little bit more. Every year beyond that, the percentage goes up. I have a beautiful testimony of Tracy here, of how she's walked through this passage. I essentially gave her an opening question. When you read this passage, given what you're walking through, what does it speak to you? And here's what she says. 
she said more than just this, but here's a part of what she said. The command to seek God's kingdom first has become more necessary to me than ever before. I cannot will myself not to be anxious and not fear. I am powerless and see clearly that I need supernatural power for this. I become desperate for him and his help. He is the only one who can miraculously intervene or give me the comfort and help I need if he doesn't. I've also developed a better understanding that my treasure is indeed in heaven. Being faced with a prognosis of two to five more years on earth, I'm wanting to get to know as much about heaven as I can, and I'm asking God to help me to look forward to it. Robert essentially also responded and said, I, I love the way he said it. Uh, one thing he says, it's encouraging just to be reminded that God is involved in the messy parts of life. And I love this quote. He's not just a smiling Sunday morning God. That, that God is with us in this hard time. And he says something to the effect of, I'm going to mourn. I'm, I'm, I'm not happy that the Lord is taking my, li- my wife. I don't feel guilty about that. I don't want to lose her. But on the other hand, I recognize that there may come a time where I can see how the kingdom is at work through this. The other couple I sat down with are our are, are dear friends, Jason, Melody, Litzall. They have, Mel has uh, a prognosis of deteriorating health. It constantly is deteriorating. They have a son who's needing a heart transplant. Um, and so they've been bombarded by health issues. And, and Mel definitely is, for all of us, an example of someone who's walking through these difficult times facing the anxiety but seeking the kingdom but I really want to make sure we all understand it's a fight it's a fight when we when we see someone like that sometimes we can just think oh wow look how great they're doing man is it a struggle is it a fight to fight for this perspective of the kingdom that we see here's something that that Mel wrote I think my anxiety comes when I think I know better than God when I try to seek my own kingdom instead of seeking his. Because I've seen God show up time and time again through difficult circumstances. It's grown my faith, but I can still, just like the Israelites, forget and think that I know better. Mel's putting her words exactly on what the passage is telling us, isn't she? She's saying, when I feel anxiety, that is an example that I'm trying to be the king. Things aren't going the way I want them to go. And that's where my anxiety and my treasure is revealed. My anxiety is revealing my treasure. When I try to seek my own kingdom instead of seeking his. Jason beautifully put his finger on this already not, yes. Jason is is Melody's husband of the kingdom. And he essentially said something to the effect of the only way I can walk through this with my wife and with my family now is because I have the hope that it's all going to be made right in the end. It's this beautiful, practical, theological illustration of walking in the already not yet of the kingdom. If I don't have hope that Jesus is going to complete this work and finish this, then I couldn't walk through what I'm walking through now. Thank you, Mansons, for helping me. It was a minister to me, and I hope it ministered to you as well. Well, let's clean it up and tidy it up. What can we say at the end of this? Well, the first thing we can say is, as we're struggling with anxiety, which we're going to do, have we made peace with our Father by believing in Jesus? Have we sought his kingdom by trying to help others make peace with their Father by placing their faith in Jesus? Secondly, 
Have we recognized Jesus as the king and allowed his reign over every facet of our life, including our possessions and our time and our energy and what we're building? Because I don't want you to leave here and I don't think that this passage encourages you to leave here feeling like, man, that's kind of harsh. That when I feel anxiety, it's a reminder of my selfishness. Because there's a way to sort of spin that. If you're like me, there's a way to do negative talk on that. It's like, I'm so stupid. I'm feeling anxious again. Knucklehead, stop feeling anxious. Right? That's not the point of the passage, right? The point of the passage is, it is Jesus' grace to us. It is great grace for him to reveal to us so much of what we spend our energy and our time is not going to protect us from anxiety. The great grace is that if we spend our time and our energy and we focus our attention, just like Mel said, trying to not seek our own kingdom, but instead seeking his kingdom, that we're placing our faith in the only thing that God, that cannot go away from us. Rob Lister said this really well in his Mary Martha passage, that everything but Jesus can be taken from us. Everything. So Jesus and his kingdom are the only things that we can rightly place our faith and our hope in. So help us, Lord Jesus, to do exactly that.